Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD, pro physique athlete, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by the legend, Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, who is an absolute amazing researcher in the fields and has really shed a lot of light into bodybuilding and hypertrophy in terms of the science. So we're really lucky to have you back on the show, Brad. Always a pleasure. So we're going to start off with some mechanisms of hypertrophy and then go into some of the research that kind of has been a hot topic lately that and that Brad has been involved in. So yeah, I was hoping we could get an update from you, Brad, just in terms of broad strokes, the our current understanding on the mechanisms of hypertrophy. Yeah, I mean, this can be a topic that would take, you know, eight, a full eight hour course to do, but I'll kind of go in the short course in that um, we, we still have a long way to go. Anyone who is uh, professes to have a clear understanding, or, or I shouldn't even say understanding, but a, a clear opinion as to exactly what causes hypertrophy, the underlying mechanisms, either is naive or, or they are uh, over-extrapolating from research what mm. they can't, can't extrapolate because there's still so much we don't know. Uh, clearly, uh, mechanical tension is the primary driver uh, mm. because we know that without mechanical tension, hypertrophy is very limited. But whether other mechanisms contribute to that, uh, such as metabolic stress, muscle damage, uh, and, and we can go into other potential uh, causative factors such as uh, hypoxia. There, you know, hypoxia, certainly hypoxia causes metabolic stress. So it's often thought that, well, like through blood flow restriction or training in uh, in a hypoxic environment, either in altitude, a higher altitude, or in, in a hyperbaric chamber, um, that there is some evidence of increased hypertrophy. Now, is that due to metabolic stress? Is it due to something that might be specific to hypoxic factors? There could be um, myokines, which are substances produced by the muscles. So again, this is it's very... Um, I still think we are really at the preliminary stage. Uh, and it's just part of the issue is it's very difficult to tease out these mechanisms. Uh, mm -hmm. When you alter one mechanism, ultimately you end up altering other mechanisms. So to try to draw causality, the way you draw causality on a topic is by manipulating a variable and making sure you control all the other variables. If there's confounding between variables, it impairs your ability to draw what's called causality, which is the ability to draw an inference that one uh, one thing causes another. So bottom line is, is that um, mechanical tension is clearly a, the primary driver of hypertrophy, but other factors may be involved. And then the question is, if they're involved, are they additive or are they, you know synergistic or are they redundant within a certain within certain conditions being met. So again, a lot to unpack. And I would hope over the next five to 10 years, we'll have a better understanding. But again, just with current technology and given the issues in trying to study the topic, it presents a lot of problems. You would think, or people tend to think that research can just get to the bottom and solve issues and it can be extremely difficult. Yeah, I think that's it's important to get that disclaimer out there and glad to be hearing it from you as well. That I think it, it's an exciting time, right, that we're starting to elucidate some of these mechanisms and start to get a better understanding. But we're still figuring a lot of things and you know, great to hear it straight from the horse's mouth that you're like ground zero, basically. 
so yeah, I wanted to unpack those a little bit, maybe starting off with mechanical tension, since it's so, so important. How would you, you know, define mechanical tension or like in, in terms of especially the training stimulus, like what kind of variables would contribute? So mechanical tension in simple terms is the force placed on a muscle and uh, the body, the muscles take these uh, mechanical signals and convert them into chemical signals through a process called mechanotransduction. Uh, and that's clearly a driver to stimulus. And once the chemical signals, once mechanical uh, signals are converted into chemical signals, there's uh, various enzymes that carry out um, anabolism and, and could there's catabolic processes as well. So there's kind of a yin and a yang between ana anabolism, which is to build up, and catabolism, which is to break down. Uh, so when anabolism predominates over catabolism, because these signals will generally will um, exist in combinations. So you'll have mm. catabolic signals in in uh, in combination with the anabolic signals. And anyway, when one predominates over the other, it'll bring about either atrophy or uh, hypertrophy or maintenance if they're equal uh, over time. And again, short term, you can't look at this on very short term basis. You have to look at what's happening over the course of time as to how the body regulates um, synthesis of contractile proteins and, and uh, generally protein, uh, proteins in general in the body, cellular proteins, because there are other proteins that conceivably can contribute to hypertrophy other than contractile proteins. Um, and, and ultimately, uh, the me mechanical signals will, if they are properly carried out, you, you will have over time this uh, hypertrophic response. Now, I, I think it's also important to understand that purely by saying that, people will say, well, then just lifting with a 1RM because you're going to have much heavier loads and that's mm -hmm. greater mechanical tension. It doesn't necessarily work that way because there is a time tension integral. So it's not only the amount of tension, but it's the time that the muscle exists under tension. And I want to add, it's not necessarily the time that the muscle exists under tension within a given set. It's You can do multiple sets, and really it's the, the time that the muscle is under tension within a given session, or perhaps over the course of days and weeks. So you have mm. to look at it. It's, again, not an easy uh, topic to study, and, and we're still trying to understand that better. But the thought that there is this ideal time under tension where within a given set, a muscle needs to be under tension for a certain amount of time has not been borne out in research and there is actually evidence to the contrary to that. So bottom line is, is that um, we know that a mechanical stimulus, a force must be placed on a muscle. It must reach a certain magnitude uh, to be of sufficient, uh, to provide a sufficient stimulus uh, to the muscles to bring about change. And then it must do that for a sufficient period of time. And again, how that all, I wish I can give you a formula that uh, you do X and that's going to maximize hypertrophy. Uh, it's just not, we don't have that type of data. Uh, and, and we are far from, in my humble opinion, we're far from getting that type of data. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I really like how you talked about how it's kind of an integral, so kind of taking the area into the curve sort of thing and factoring in as well how that, that accumulates across sessions where 
you know, finding a way, then this is where frequency comes into the equation, where finding a way to maximize your overall productivity across the training week becomes important. Frequency and volume as well, yeah. Yeah, and I think a common question that, you know, that gets brought up these days is, I think we kind of have an understanding that you probably want to get trained to a certain proximity uh, to failure, at least, you know, somewhere in the range of like four-ish RIR or or more intensely. Um, the question that always gets asked is, what is, you know, is there, do we have any idea of a difference that there would be between a slightly uh, lower intensity training approach where you perform more volume overall, like someone who trains to four IR but does more sets in total versus someone who trains very close to failure, like one RIR and does a lower volume? Short answer is no. Um, hmm. The failure uh, research is um, quite interesting. We we actually carried out a meta analysis on this, mm -hmm. and um, what we what certainly seems to be the case from uh, research is is that you don't need to train to failure, um, but that you need to train relatively, as you kind of uh, alluded to, you need to train relatively close to failure. <clears throat> now, is that uh, two RIR or three RIR, four RIR? And if, again, I would say that's even kind of a shallow way to look at it because we don't have to have a binary view of this. It doesn't mean that all sets need to be carried out at a given RIR. How about doing a three RIR, then a two, then a one? Let's say you're doing four sets of a given exercise. Mm -hmm. Three RIR, two, one, and then the last set to failure. There's just... We don't have data on this, so um, it's there's many permutations. Trying to look at it in in a binary way, like an either or, you train either at two RIR or three RIR, does not yeah. do justice. again doesn't do justice to the topic. And and this again, in my humble opinion, is an issue with the way people interpret research in general, because research is generally ca uh, carried out in this basis. Uh, it, it's just. There's so many permutations when you when you affect one variable, you can affect another. And when you there's so many different ways to manipulate variables. So one of the limitations of, of the research at this point on failure training is that all it's generally multiple set routines and they're either all sets to failure versus sets not to failure and the sets not to failure at different are either RIRs or RPEs and how they're going about it are, is different. So it, it makes it very difficult to draw uh, conclusions. I think the uh, conclusion we can draw at this point is you need to certainly train hard uh, to optimize results, but you don't necessarily need to train to failure. But I, I will also say that mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that some failure training might not be beneficial as well. That all sets might not have to be to failure, but that doesn't mean that some sets doesn't mean you might not benefit from having some of your sets taken to failure. And by the way, I can keep going on about this topic as well. Mm -hmm. What about the type of exercise that's done? So there's a big difference between taking, let's say, a compound, a multi-joint free weight exercise like a squat to failure yeah. versus doing a bicep curl to failure or a lateral raise. So uh, you know, your ability to recuperate that from that is certainly much easier. The systemic fatigue. Um, so the effect on volume load will be different. We're actually, uh, one of my students uh, just finished a thesis uh, on that's looking at this, that 
hopefully I should have uh, some data on within the next month or so. So, uh, and, and the uh, training status, we don't have any studies on very highly trained individuals. So my, mm. most of my research is carried out in, in trained subjects, as is the case in the literature. That doesn't mean they're high level bodybuilders. That yeah. means they're the average guys and gals in the gym who go to the gym several days a week and they lift. And uh, I will tell you that the vast majority of subjects in our studies, when they come into our studies, invariably they say they're pushed harder than they've ever been pushed. <laughs> so, uh, so again, trying to draw conclusions is is somewhat difficult uh, in, in the question you're asking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. And it's interesting how, yeah, when you start looking at the research, you realize that all of these questions are going to be they're difficult to answer in, in a practical sense, especially when all the variables start interconnecting, like as you, you know, train more close to failure and do more sets at, at that high intensity, it starts impacting your your volume and and training status comes into play as well. And, and by the way, one other thing that I want to make sure that is clear is that research will only provide guidelines for training. So even when we have more conclusive data on certain things, there's always going to be individual differences on virtually every variable. So some variables, I think, more than others. Um, but uh, basically, research provides a general blueprint for to getting you into the ballpark as to what to do. But ultimately, it then comes down to an N equals one because there's genetic factors. There are various lifestyle factors, stress, sleep, uh, nutritional factors, always that will enter into uh, the equation when you're looking to individualize a routine and find out what's going to be best for you. So, uh, you know, when I, I, I don't do much consulting at this point, but certainly I've done a ton of it in the past with very high level bodybuilders. And I would always, the, the routines would never be, you know, identical. There would always have differences and in some cases quite uh, stark differences between uh, individuals based on their individual response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's, I think, really important to consider, especially when we're, you know, putting out guidelines, people fail to grasp that, yeah, there's a lot of individualization that still needs to come into play. Moving on to, yeah, I guess metabolic stress would be another pathway to talk about. And I guess to start off, how should people think about uh, metabolic stress as it's produced in training? Yeah, so metabolic stress is, in simple terms, the uh, production and the accumulation of metabolites. So metabolites are the breakdown products from substances uh, in the body. Uh, some of the more common uh, metabolites that people talk about are lactate, hydrogen ions, uh, inorganic phosphate, calcium. Uh, but there are literally hundreds of metabolites that are produced. There, there was a recent paper that showed... Uh, well over a hundred metabolites were produced mm. during resistance training that affected, that potentially could affect uh, the hypertrophic response. And again, they don't, we don't know, but they just, uh, it, at least they raise questions as to whether they may be involved in hypertrophy. So um, we have a paper, I'm collaborating on a paper on lactate with some real interesting um, uh, literature, real, real interesting research that's come up on this, mostly in animal models, because um, it's just much more difficult to study in humans, uh, that suggests there may, that lactate may play a role. Uh, again, whether it's 
If it does, whether it is redundant, uh, given a certain mechanical tension, or whether it's additive, synergistic, is not clear. But um, ultimately, you're generally going to get more metabolite production with a higher repetition type of training. Um, and by the way, um, there is some evidence that higher repetition training may lead to greater sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Again, I want to emphasize may, because that uh, evidence is still, in my opinion, quite preliminary. But colleagues of mine, uh, Dr. Mike Roberts, who is a terrific researcher out of Auburn, uh, Cody Horn, uh, and Chris Van, uh, two of his students, were uh, very involved in this research. And that's something I think that we need to uh, see more of to get greater, to draw stronger inferences. But whether that has to do with metabolite production or whether it exists, first of all, uh, we need to find mm -hmm. out. If it does, what are the drivers of it? Uh, but uh, I do think that it's an interesting area. I know some people have dismissed um, metabolic stress as a uh, uh, potential hypertrophic response. And I, again, I think it's very short-sighted. There's no way, you know, again, I, I know the literature backwards and forwards on this. And from reading the literature, I just don't see how anyone could draw a strong conclusion one way or the other. Uh, certainly, I can't. Anyone who would say the opposite. By, by the way, I, I should also say there's people that are, are very strong proponents that metabolic stress, you know, they talk definitively about this. And again, I, I think similarly to the people that dismiss it, uh, I just think that uh, the, the literature is just very equivocal at this point. And there's some evidence that it may and some evidence that it may not. And uh, I don't see how one can reconcile that. Mm -hmm. And in terms of translating this into practice for people, what kind of detectable proxies can people use to say that they're getting metabolic stress? You know, people talk about the pump. Well, I mean, the pump, yeah, but you're, how do you get a pump? Are you going to do three rep, three rep sets? So, I mean, if you're training with higher reps, so people often ask about, uh, I, I get a question like, well, how can people use the uh, potential mechanisms to create a routine? I think that's kind of backwards because if you create your routine around what we know through the variables, that's going to take care of itself. And mm -hmm. one of my, uh, one of the things that I believe based on preliminary evidence in the literature is that we should train through a spectrum of repetition ranges, to okay, yeah. again, for maximizing hypertrophy. Uh, and if you do that, you're going to get the, the metabolic uh, components going to be there. And, and by the way, when we're talking about these things, I think it's also important to point out that we're really talking about icing on the cake here. I don't think it, this is, this is uh, going to make a difference for guys like you, you know, WMBF Pro, and congratulations on that. Thanks. But, uh, and for people who want to maximize their muscular potential, for the average gym goer, I think that, you know, you, you can do, this is all stuff that is way, uh, this is, it's really irrelevant to a large percentage of the population because mm -hmm. they can, m most or I would say majority of people who train based on their goals can get by with a minimalistic type of routine and just doing like one set you know, fairly close to failure with a high level of effort and do two or three 20 minute routines and get, you know, a good deal of their results. Uh, certainly they're not going to maximize their muscular potential, but they will get uh, very good results for 
and I think probably a good trade-off between uh, cost and benefit. And cost here would be time. So, so when we're talking about this, I want to make sure it's clear that it's not like we're talking that you know metabolic stress is going to get someone jacked or training with this. Uh, it, it's more nuanced that this maybe can get you know the extra five ten percent of gains that you might be able to accumulate. And mm -hmm. I'm just throwing. When I even talk about percentages, I'm just throwing out a number that no way we can quantify what that may be. But really, uh, in in terms of getting the most out of your your muscular potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then in terms of you know the actual training techniques as well, is there anything fundamentally different between different techniques that people use for metabolic training, like? The difference between high reps versus like drop sets or blood flow restriction or as you mentioned like hypoxia type uh, techniques well so uh, to this so first of all there's going to be a level of hypoxia when you're training because you're when you're training and compressing the vessels they will mm. have a certain amount of hypoxia but we're talking about maximizing hypoxia let's say through blood flow restriction training um Certainly, that creates more metabolic stress, but it also uh, creates other. There, are, there's something called hypoxia-inducible factor, which is a uh, a cytokine that is produced within the uh, body. So basically, it's a substance that the body produces. And um, what is the uh, effect of HIF uh, in various isoforms of HIF? And hypertrophy. I mean, there's some evidence that that alone uh, is involved in a in hypertrophy. So whether again, or or could it be a combination of such? Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, there's not great evidence that uh, by itself uh, that uh, blood flow restriction training has greater effects than um, just doing regular resistance training at heavier loads or or even lighter loads. So. We don't really have good evidence as to whether there might be, again, a synergistic effect of adding in some um, blood flow restriction training in and why there's been a couple of studies, but I think it's uh, difficult to, I I'm, don't think certainly we have enough to draw any strong conclusions from it. So, uh, so as far as that goes, I think uh, training techniques and drop sets, like you said, certainly can heighten uh, uh, metabolite production, will they produce greater benefits? The literature to this point on drop sets has not um, shown to be additive. Mm -hmm. And stay tuned, we have uh, a paper coming out on that. So nice. uh, so again, uh, a lot of stuff that we're, we still a lot of, from a practical standpoint, a lot we still need to uh, to figure out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting applications I see in understanding this kind of aspect of training is when thinking about periodization or just different pathways is um, the like ability to mitigate fatigue or um, as well as uh, injury risk. As, as I think this applies more as people get more advanced and something I've noticed going forward where like coming to this last contest prep, I was I had, you know, 10 tendinosis of uh, like my quads that was really bad. And I ended up doing a lot of training with BFR and high rep stuff and was still able to at least maintain my gains, which I was really happy about. 
Yeah, and by the way, I think another important point is that when we talk about maximizing metabolic stress, do we need the logical question is do we need to maximize it, or maybe could there be a threshold? Maybe metabolic stress has relevance, but that there's a threshold and beyond which you you might get a dose response up to a certain point, mm -hmm. and then more metabolic stress beyond a certain point might not have additive effects. So again, that, how we're looking at the topic. It's always there's often this thought that uh, well if some is good more has to be better and that is not always the case. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of mTOR, which is a uh, anabolic enzyme that's involved in, uh, or maybe you're not. But for those who aren't, mTOR is an integral uh, enzyme in the cascade in the intracellular signaling cascade. Um, we do know that. In when mTOR gets elevated above a certain level, it, there's some evidence it actually has negative effects. Uh, so mm. maximizing mTOR is good. Activating mTOR certainly is extremely important, but is maximizing its effects? There, there's evidence that not only may not, that not be the case, it might actually have what's called a hermetic response, where it actually starts to have a reduced effect over a period of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that throws a wrench into things. Uh, and then the last mechanism would be muscle damage then. Um, how should people think about that? Yeah, so muscle damage uh, involves structural uh, perturbations within uh, muscle tissue. Uh, and it can be not only in the contractile elements themselves, but uh, muscle damage can also manifest in the... Uh, in the extracellular matrix, uh, in the sarcolemma, which is the muscle membrane, and, and other aspects of muscle. So um, need to be careful with uh, how it's defined. Um, I will say this, that training and having no muscle damage would be very difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, you're going to get some muscle damage. So is some muscle damage necessary? Again, is that obligatory? Is it... Um, uh, is it, um, is there a threshold? A certain, well, here's what I will say. I, I think certainly there's a threshold that uh, the chasing very high amounts of muscle damage is counterproductive. I, I would say that with a high degree of confidence because if nothing else, you cannot train properly. If you're coming out of the gym and you're walking like Frankenstein where you can't, <laughs> you can't raise your arms or, you know, over your head and you, uh, and you can, you're walking with stiff legs because you can't bend your knees. Uh, you, you're not going to be able to train properly over the next several days. And that obviously is going to have negative effects on recovery and on your ability to uh, to make muscular gains. Um, the question then becomes how much is, is muscle damage, number one, obligatory? And that I think is still up in the air, but I think there's some evidence that that there may be at least a minimal threshold that is needed. Uh, and then is there a sweet spot? So um, again, a lot to that. This, so this is, we know, certainly we know that too much is not good. Uh, it's tough to uh, imagine how zero muscle damage would be possible. Um, so mm -hmm. uh, does, does the muscle damage that occurs actually contribute? Again, not clear. But um, trying to put that into the context of uh, of a mechanism, 
there is some evidence that that there is effects and some evidence that there is not. And uh, and by the way, for those who uh, want to really delve into this, I collaborated on a paper circa 2018, and the uh, lead author was Henning Wackerhage, which is W-A-C-K-E-R-H-A-G-E, a uh, tremendous uh, friend of mine and a colleague out of uh, University of Munich in Germany. And uh, there was some other really terrific researchers uh, on that paper, but it's open access and it's, uh, it's a heavy read for those who want to uh, delve into it. I don't remember the exact stimuli and sensors of muscle hypertrophy or something to that effect. But uh, if you just search my name and you search uh, on PubMed and stimuli and sensors, you will uh, you'll find that you can get kind of what I, what I still think is the most up-to-date paper on that topic. Mm-hmm. And, and that really, by the way, lays out the two camps. So we, we tried to do our best to be objective in saying, hey, look, this is what we know. And here's the evidence that shows there may be a benefit. Here's the evidence that it isn't. And here's why we still have a lot to learn before we can draw strong conclusions on it. That at this point, any conclusion that we have would be a rather weak conclusion. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the practical application what are best ways to use what use as indicators of muscle damage? Like, is soreness a good proxy? Generally, it is. Um, not necessarily, uh, but often it is. So uh, if you're asking, I mean, you're not going to biopsy. You're not going to look for Z-lines. <laughs> no, to to do. Even uh, creatine kinase is a measure that's often used. That's really not a great gauge either, and that's a procedure that, people aren't going to do. So the easiest way from a practical standpoint is to use soreness as a guide. And I do I do think that um, some degree of muscle soreness um, probably is a, is a decent indicator that if nothing, whether it has to do with the muscle damage or not, it generally is indicative of a novel response. So yeah. I think it's a, uh, a decent proxy at least to say that uh, now, with that said, if you're not sore, does that mean you're not making gains? No. So uh, I, I would not, I wouldn't say the opposite. That just because you're not sore doesn't mean you didn't get a good workout and you, um, and you did something. You, you need to then chase soreness. But I do think also that uh, having some at least mild soreness uh, would be probably indicative of uh, of of the fact you had a novel response and that may, and I want to emphasize, may be reflective uh, that you're generating hypertrophic responses. Yeah, no, I think that I agree fully with that approach where, you know, it's kind of, it's just a nice indicator where, you know, you did something to that muscle. And uh, as long as it, I usually recommend people aim for some level of soreness, as long as it doesn't interfere with their next session. Exactly. On a related note to damage, uh, people have been talking a lot about stretches like the loaded stretch as it relates to hypertrophy what's our current stance on that so interesting you asked about that Uh, we have a paper that was just accepted should Mm -hmm. be published within the next i think week or two in plus one where we looked at um just that topic we looked at the loaded stretch in the calf muscles Uh, and i'll give you kind of the short course uh in, in what we found uh, was that, uh, so we looked at hypertrophy of the, 
uh, soleus, the medial gastroc, and the lateral gastroc. So th basically three different muscle measurements. Um, there really was not much in the gastroc. Slight, slight effects were seen in uh, the lateral gastroc. I believe it was the lateral. One of the gastrocs. I'm here testing my memory. Mm -hmm. Well, since uh, we submitted that paper, uh, but what we did find was that the uh, the soleus showed an effect of uh, of the loaded stretch. And what we did was, by the way, when we talk about a loaded stretch, we had the subjects do eight to twelve reps, and then at the end of the set, uh, they would descend into a twenty second loaded stretch using mm. the same weight that they trained at. So there's all different ways you could carry out uh, loaded stretching is, you know, it doesn't mean you have to do it in the way we did it. First of all, you could do it for longer periods of time or shorter periods of time. You could use more weight or less weight, but we chose to use the same weight because that kind of facilitates, um, makes it easy in terms from a practical standpoint of what people could do. They do a set, mm -hmm. the exact weight, they don't have to strip off weight or whatever. They could just use the same uh, weight for their stretch. And again, we used a 20 second stretch that was tolerable, although uh, the subjects did feel as a rating when we asked them just you know, it was harder. It certainly was uh, harder for them to accomplish. Uh, but they did see uh, benefits in the soleus muscle, which, by the way, the soleus, for those who don't know, I'm sure you do, uh, but the soleus is mainly a slow twitch, a type 1 predominant muscle. It's 80 plus percent uh, type one fibers, whereas the gastroc is a much more mixed fiber, roughly 50-50. Um, so could it be that there's something about slow twitch muscles or could there be other factors? Why did this soleus show greater effects? Again, we don't know. Mm -hmm. And then on a related note, I know this is something that old school bodybuilders used to do, but how about interset stretching? You mean non-loaded stretching? Yeah, yeah, like, you know, people like Arnold would talk about this kind of stuff. Um, so I remember um, John Perillo, which brings back a blast from the past, was, he called it, I think, like myofascial stretching. Or I forget, he had a term for it, where he did like a really hard stretch. We don't have good data on this. There was one study done at Brazil that actually did show a, seemed to show a benefit to that. Um so I and and again I don't uh, could that have a benefit maybe I'm somewhat skeptical of that um, but I will say that uh, the loaded stretch our study is one of multiple studies that's been published on this and the data are conflicting so <clears throat> I certainly would not draw strong conclusions from our data because a colleague of mine Eduardo D'Souza carried out recently carried out a study in in uh, chest and pectoral development and mm. showed no benefit. Now he had a, a different design. So he had them use a different machine. So they did like a bench press and they went into a cable fly and they used mm. a much lower percentage of their, uh, their loading that they used. So again, how that maybe uh, um, factors in it. And he used uh, well-trained subjects. We used untrained subjects. Uh, there was another study that was published uh, well, I'm sorry, that wasn't published, that was published as an abstract, uh, conference abstract, in the calves that seemed to show uh, substantial benefits, much more than we showed in, in the gastroc as well. 
There's been another study or two, I think, that did show benefits and another one that didn't. So we're trying to, again, tease these out and figuring out why uh, one maybe shows more benefits than another. I think we're a while away from drawing those conclusions. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I guess this is also related, but, you know, people talk about exercises that also focus on the stretch um, in terms of maybe changing movement angles or uh, getting yourself into a position where you'll be in a loaded stretch at the bottom or or even talking about doing partial reps in like the more stretched end range of motion. Yep. How should people think about that? Yeah, and before answering that question, I want to uh, add that when you're talking about something like training and pretty much everything in life, comes down to cost benefit. So mm -hmm. when we talk about, let's say, the loaded stretch concept, there's really no negative effects that are seen from it, and there are potential positive effects. So even though the literature, you know, I can't, even though I might have to equivocate and say that I can't say that this is a the be-all end-all, you know, hey, this is a technique that's going to get you jacked, I think it provides at this point a good cost benefit. So it's it's worth experimenting with. Uh, given what we know that there does seem to show a positive benefit and there, to my thinking, I certainly we didn't see any negative effects. There actually were some uh, positive effects on strength, which were kind of interesting as well. Uh, so I, I think it's something that bears experimentation. Now, to your question about um, the uh, training at a long muscle length versus short muscle length, mm -hmm. partial reps, very interesting topic. And I think the literature here is somewhat clear that uh, for at least certain muscles, training at long muscle lengths is a is beneficial. It's been shown, I don't think there's any, or in my opinion, there's compelling data in the mm. quadriceps. I, I think it's would be hard to argue at this point otherwise that the quadriceps, the uh, beginning phase, uh, so let's say in a leg extension, we're talking mm. about the initial phase to, let's say, 45 degrees or so. Uh, so 90 degrees to 50, 45 degrees produces greater hypertrophy than if you just did 50 degrees, 45 degrees to zero degrees. So the end phase locking out. Does that mean that you just should be doing partials? No, not necessarily. Uh, it probably is beneficial uh, to train through the full range of motion. But the question then becomes, is there maybe a benefit to doing partials, so adding in some partials? let's say with leg extensions, mm -hmm. it starts to get a little more uh, dicey when we're talking about a squat because that has uh, multiple joints involved. So when you're, you're not just talking about, let's say the, the knee joint acting, of course, you're talking about the hip joint, you're talking about the ankle joint as well. Uh, so there, it, it's somewhat different to, uh, to extrapolate, but I, I would certainly say in leg extensions uh, where we have a decent amount of data now, Adding in some partials, I think, is a uh, benefit, a, at least hypothetically, a beneficial strategy. I was involved in a study where we actually looked at just doing the initial half, so the long training at a long muscle length versus training at a short muscle length versus training through the full range of motion. Mm. And for some of the muscles, the partial actually showed better results than the full range over time now hmm. one study we don't want to look too much into one study and give too much credence to it but i think again uh, cost benefit wise adding in some long length partials is certainly beneficial and certainly for the quads uh, the hamstring seems to be a benefit 
There may be muscles where it has less relevance. Uh, so it might depend on the force length uh, relationship. So this is, again, don't want to get bogged down in uh, biomechanics and technical terms, but there's called the ascending limb versus descending limb, which is where um, a muscle acts on the force length curve. And uh, if it works on the descending limb, the theory is the, uh, if that given muscle works on the descending limb, that there's a greater benefit to a stretch, to training at a long muscle length and stretch. And if it's on the ascending limb, it isn't. But I think that's oversimplified in that um, there's passive elements that are involved in training at a stretch that also may be involved. So um, we just don't have a lot of, most of the data at this point have looked at the uh, quads, the hamstrings to a lesser extent than the, uh, uh, are the biceps to, to a lesser extent. I think there's been one study, or actually two now, in the uh, triceps. There was just another study in the triceps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's been interesting seeing those come out, and um, it's a hot topic that uh, I think is very interesting. Going on, I saw that you were involved in another paper um, that you guys did a systematic review on whether vary, varying resistance exercises promotes uh, better hypertrophy and strength. Could you tell us about what you guys found? Yeah, so I mean, I've actually been involved in a couple. So the most recent one we did, we did a meta analysis looking at, um, I'm not sure wh which one you're talking about, but- uh, Too many. <laughs> when you're talking about the one, so we did a narrative review. I think actually, I'm sorry, it was a systematic review on uh, exercise, uh, Variation. We also did one on uh, multi-joint versus single joint, and again, the conclusions were fairly similar between those papers. That there does seem to be a benefit to uh, combining exercises. So, um, muscles. Um, first of all, hypertrophy in a non-regional fashion. This has been well documented now in the literature, meaning that the hypertrophy at different aspects along the length of the muscle. It's been very well documented again in the quadriceps, particularly the vastus lateralis, where um, which is the muscle in the lateral aspect of the quadriceps. And um, the uh, distal aspects, or the uh, part that's closer to the knee, hypertrophies differentially to the proximal aspect and depending mm -hmm. on certain factors, and the middle aspect uh, hypertrophies differentially as well. So that can have to do with the type of exercise done, even with eccentric versus concentric. There's some evidence that eccentric training tends to cause greater hypertrophy in the distal segment, hmm. uh, whereas uh, concentric training seems to cause greater hypertrophy in the mid portion of the muscle. So uh, combining exercises, not only from that perspective, but muscles also are compartmentalized, they have different heads. So to effectively work all the muscles, and particularly if you're a bodybuilder, if you're looking for optimal muscle symmetry, either you're a bodybuilder or you're someone who just, again, wants to create a statue-like physique where each muscle is in perfect symmetry, mm. uh, you really have to uh, train with a variety of movements. Now, people can overdo it. It doesn't mean you need to do a different workout every day, and certainly you need to you don't need to confuse the muscles in that context mm -hmm. as has been promoted by uh, some influencers. But, um, but certainly having a variety of movements 
that are um, varied in some fashion within a fairly um, regular order. I mean, you don't want to, if you vary it once every six months, that's not enough. You know, you need to vary that within a month or so uh, over time. Or, or again, there's many different ways to configure to design programs. So how you go about doing it um, is there's some leeway in that. There's not a right or wrong way for programming. Uh, there might be a better way for certain individuals versus others and depending on goals and other factors. But um, I certainly think it is uh, indisputable that some amount of variation is necessary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is, you know, a lot of people, their first exposure to fitness or they meet some personal trainer who says, you know, squats are all you'll, you'll ever need. And then, or obviously people get married to the big three. And, um, and I've definitely seen this in my own experience where I've certainly seen, you know, myself unlock new levels of uh, progress as I've like discovered new training techniques or different exercises as well. And, and by the way, to that specific point, let's just even talking about the quads, it's been quite well documented that uh, squats and compound leg movements in general are more hypertrophy, uh, the vasti muscles, uh, preferentially, as opposed to the rectus femoris, which mm. is the muscle in the mid portion of the uh, quadriceps of the thigh. And uh, you need to do, uh, if you want to maximize uh, the rectus femoris development, which is a pretty important muscle, you need to do single joint uh, leg movements, like a leg extension or perhaps a sissy squat. So uh, that in itself is, I, I think, a very good example of why uh, those types of uh, that that type of recommendation is reductionist is overly simplistic and just not valid yeah and I know you you already said there's a lot of different ways you could do this but do you have any just you know general recommendations for how often people should be swapping out exercises so not specifically in that sense but here, here's what I do I give you a more general recommendation that yeah. I do think it's important to keep exercises that are more complex in a regular rotation. So if you're going to do a squat, it doesn't mean a squat isn't an exercise that you have to do, by the way. I mean, mm -hmm. there's certainly other exercises that will give, from a hypertrophy standpoint, now, if you, you want to be a powerlifter, then you need to do a squat because that's part yeah. of the powerlifting exercise. But from a hypertrophy standpoint, uh, more complex exercises should be kept in a regular rotation. You should be doing those like, on a weekly, at least once a week or so. Um, because there's neural factors. And if if mm. I would squat, let's say today, and didn't do a squat again for a month, I'm gonna do a shitty squat in, in the a month later. Because yeah. the neural patterns get, you know, there's still, you're still gonna have some uh, ingraining of those patterns. There is subconscious um, development that is ne neural development that does allow you to do it decently, certainly much better than when you were a ranked beginner. If you're a ranked beginner, you need to develop the patterns. It's kind of like the riding the bike analogy, but if you haven't ridden a bike in a while and you try riding a bike, you're going to be able to ride the bike, but you're not going to ride it as well as you do <laughs> when you've been riding frequently. So it's similar context. And uh, conversely, I think that um, single joint movements and machine-based movements can be rotated much more frequently. Now, the degree of okay of that rotation can vary. It, it, you can do it regularly or you can do it um, 
somewhat unregular, you know, every few weeks or so. But uh, I don't think there's necessarily any harm in rotating those uh, types of exercises on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was a really good point that you brought up about the kind of neural adaptations and the technique components that go into the more complex lifts. One other thing I want to talk about was the mind-muscle connection, where I think this is something that it's fascinating to see as we actually start seeing some research on these concepts. But what's the role of the mind-muscle connection in hypertrophy? Yeah, so uh, as a as someone who grew up as a bro and uh, <laughs> uh, followed all the uh, bodybuilding lore from the gym, uh, that was ingrained in my head from the time I started. And, uh, you know, I just naturally lift with a mind-muscle connection. So the curious nerdy scientist that I am, I had to put that to the test. So there is quite a bit of uh, uh, EMG evidence. So for those who don't know, EMG basically is an uh, electrocardiogram of the muscles. So, you know, people generally know an electrocardiogram of the heart. Well, this tells you about the activity, the uh, how much muscle activity is being produced. Um, now, an electrocardiogram gives you other data that you don't get in a uh, in an EMG, but at least from a conceptual standpoint, they're both electrophysiologic um, assessments. So basically, it's going to tell you as to the amount of activity uh, that the electrical activity that a muscle is producing. And theoretically, the higher the uh, electrical activity, the more force that the muscle is producing. Now, there are problems with that that are beyond the scope of what we can get into today. A colleague of mine, Andrew Vygotsky, has uh, done some terrific work uh, and laid that out well. So for, for those who are interested, they can Google Andrew Vygotsky and EMG and they will get a, uh, a tutorial. But anyway, but I, I do think hypothetically there is something to be said for it. And there's been a good amount of EMG research that shows when you think about a muscle, the target, let's say, so let's say you're doing a, uh, a lat pull down. Uh, or a chat, let's say a lat pull down and you're thinking about the biceps, you can get more biceps activity or, or thinking about the lats, you can get more lat activity. In a chest press, if you're thinking about the pecs, you'll get more pec activity than you will in the triceps. Um, to date, we still have published the only study on this topic. And we had, uh, we had a group of uh, untrained subjects and we did untrained subjects so they didn't have preconceived notion as to how to train. Because if you were to ask me to be in a study where they said I was put into a group that said just lift without <laughs> with an external focus, just get yeah. the weight up. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do it. I, uh, you know, I'm just so ingrained that neural pattern of, of my muscle is so ingrained in my head. Um, and by the way, you don't know when we're trying to carry out the study. There's no way we're actually able to know what subjects are thinking when we're we're giving them instructions. So we told one group squeeze the muscle. Every time they do, they're, they were working out, we said, squeeze the muscle. The other group, we just said, get the weight up, get the weight up. We assume with an untrained subject, they're going to follow our protocol and, and our instructions. Could they have not? We, we don't know. Mm. Um, but we did biceps curls and we did leg extensions. So two different exercises. We looked at biceps growth and we looked at quadriceps growth. Very interesting findings. The, uh, Biceps showed substantially greater hypertrophy for the mind-muscle connection. No differences in quadriceps growth. So what do we make of that? Now, could it just be a, a chance finding? Possibly. Uh, we hypothesize that it could be that uh, 
untrained subjects in particular had an easier time focusing on their the squeeze of the biceps. And some of the subjects actually in our exit interviews, when we asked them, you know, what they thought of the study, they mentioned they had more difficulty in uh, in getting the mind muscle connection, thinking about the squeeze of the quadriceps. So uh, it's a topic that still needs a lot more study, but again, cost benefit. I do think uh, that uh, a mind muscle connection is is I, I don't see it being detrimental in any way, and I think it's potentially beneficial. And mm -hmm. by the way, I, I also do want to say that's for hypertrophy. If the goal is strength, it's the opposite. I would suggest okay. having the external focus, which is a cue like push your head through the ceiling when you're doing squats or push the uh, push the barbell through the ceiling when you're doing a bench press. So thinking about uh, an external focus would have greater um, performance-based outcomes such as strength. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I find really cool about bodybuilding where yeah it, it is a different beast ultimately and uh there are a lot of nuances to training where it's nice to know that you know with some of these techniques that there isn't really much of a downside so it's something that people can really work on doesn't cost you anything you don't need any special equipment for it so yeah keeping mindful of the time i think we should probably wrap up uh it's always great to hear you know the current perspectives straight out of uh words from the man himself. What are you excited about in terms of research coming up that you're involved in? Okay, so uh, I mean, so much. So I, uh, I'm very blessed to have some terrific master's degree students who are carrying out theses on a variety of topics. I'll give you one, an insight into one study that we currently have in review without spilling too much of the results until it gets published. We, we're looking at uh, the old um, and what is the very uh, the most common progression model is do you actually need to add load uh, to the bar to optimize muscle growth and muscle strength? Mm. And uh, the classic uh, advice is, is that you pick a repetition range and then as you get stronger, you add more weight to the bar. Well, we're actually looking at one group that did that. And we have another group that's uh, staying with their same weight and they, uh, Instead of adding weight to the bar, they just keep doing more repetitions nice. over the course of the study. And the findings, I think, were quite interesting. So uh, I'll leave you with a cliffhanger to that. And I'll, <laughs> I'll be sharing that. Uh, we're, we're in hopefully the final stages of peer review on that. So I should have some uh, data to share very soon. Nice. Yeah, well, we'll have to get you back on at some point for more updates. So yeah, with that, I just wanted to thank you again for being on the show, Brad. And for those who don't know, um, Brad has written a couple of great books, this, The Max Muscle Plan and The Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, which I think you should all check out because as you can see, he's um, a wealth of knowledge. Where can people find you? Uh, Google me. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, I'm all over social media, particularly uh, Instagram and Twitter is, is the, my main uh, main social media platforms. I'm on Facebook a little as well. Uh, I don't do TikTok. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not big on the videos, but uh, but anyway. But if someone Google's me, they'll they'll get all the info they need. I have a, a website where I should be blogging more, but I do uh, blog somewhat occasionally. Awesome. So yeah, thanks so much again for being on the show. Until next time, Brad. My pleasure as always. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one online coaching. 
I also offer one-time custom hypertrophy programs tailored to your needs. So if you want to take your gains to the next level, DM me on Instagram and I'll let you know my rates. Make sure you follow the podcast and we'll see you next time.